everybody. Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. This is Eric Mann, your host, along with Channing Martinez, our producer who always helps me get the show out the door. Very happy today to be in a conversation with Madison Tang of Code Pink, who's a new campaign organizer with their China is Not the Enemy campaign. And Barbara Lott Holland, the co-chair of the Bus Riders Union, and yes, I'm the other co-chair, and she's going to be talking about Stop the MTA's Apartheid Bus Pass campaign, meaning the fight against MTA transit racism and the fight against U.S. imperialism is always operative. Hi, Madison. Hi, Barbara. How are you both doing? Hello. Hi, Eric. I'm doing well. Good. Um... So here's what we're going to do today, folks. The uh, Several things. You know, I've been re-energized by paying more attention to, I don't even want to say the international, because we consider the black community in the United States part of an international united front against U.S. imperialism. But still, the outside the U.S. borders work of the Strategy Center has been given a boost. We want to thank COPAC, where they've got us involved in this campaign on Stopping Vaccine Imperialism, which we'll do more about. And I believe that the uh, Code Pink Congress is actually going to be talking about that this evening. You should check that out. And the fact that I can go back to defending the right of self-determination of the People's Republic of China, country about I have great respect, and this endless fight with the Los Angeles MTA and its transit racism and that no, it's not Donald Trump, folks. It's the Democrats as well. It's not Donald Trump now attacking China. He did. It's now Joe Biden. What are we going to do? We're going to build a black, Latinx, third world alliance. But that's easier said than done. Uh, Voices from the front lines is about doing things. Now, 
I'm really asking some of the listeners uh, to step to the plate for us in this way. I need to try to get 20 emails today. I dream at Eric, at Voices from the Front Lines, that would say, one, I'm going to listen, and then when you go to podcast, which will be the next day on SoundCloud, on Spotify, on Apple, you're going to put out an email. I'll be on that list because I'm going to go to voicesfromthefrontlines.com, and I'm going to sign up. Most of you are getting that email that we just put out as an example today. And I'm going to write to Eric at Voices from the Frontlines and say, yeah, count me in. If you're going to do a uh, China is not the enemy campaign, please count me in. If you're going to do a stop the MTA apartheid campaign, count me in. And we will put you in a priority list of people that have agreed to do stuff, which means you'll be given more asks, but that's what you want to do in life, okay? Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. And please go on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. If you have not already registered, as soon as you get on, you can click, okay? So there's two very compelling issues. So here's how we're going to do the show today. Uh, Madison's going to begin. I just had a great pre-show talk with her about uh, about five minutes of where this campaign going, what's the core issues. And Barbara's going to read from a letter that we've sent out to the movement just now uh, to try to stop the MTA's apartheid low-income pass campaign that she'll explain. Then we're going to go back to Madison for a more extended conversation. Then around 3.30, we're going to take a break and we're going to dance to Peaches and Herb uh, Shake Your Groove thing because we're going to start shaking our groove thing every show around 3.30 for three or four minutes. If you can stand, stand up and do it. If you can't, do it in your chair, do it in your bed, roll your eyes, roll your soul. But we're going to do some serious dancing here, okay? So, Madison Tang, very nice to have you on Voices from the Frontlines. Tell us about the China is Not Our Enemy campaign. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, it's an honor to be on the show. Big fan of yours, Eric. Um, yeah, Code Pink's China is Not the Enemy campaign. It started about a year ago with Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans. Um, and it started as we realized at Code Pink that the same methods that were used to drive us to war in Iraq were being used by the U.S. State Department to drive a narrative that we should fear China and uh, stoke conflict with China. Um, so I joined the campaign just recently, about a week ago, so I'm a new campaign coordinator, um, and we're hitting the ground running. We had a national day of action um, on Saturday against anti-Asian violence and China bashing. And we also have a petition we released last week um, asking Secretary of State Antony Blinken to end anti-Asian violence both at home and abroad overseas by seizing the aggression towards China. Um, and we see those things as interlinked. Um, we see that the opportunistic scapegoating of China during the onset of the pandemic to the demonization of China as in a global adversary of the U.S., all of that has driven and also reinvigorated a widespread xenophobic sentiment nationally. So our goal is really with this campaign to challenge the U.S. disinformation and propaganda tactics because we know that there is a 
intention to manufacture public consent for a hybrid war with China. And we're doing that mostly by popular education, really trying to get a different narrative out there to challenge the lies and to teach people, especially in the West and especially in the left, um, more about, like you said, the great nation of China and the history um, of China-U.S. relationships that often go unspoken. Well, I'm so glad we're working together on this, and I am saying already we're working together on this because the the Labor Community Strategy Center, you know, we have a, every Saturday now, we have a block party, we call it the political block party. Everything we do is prefaced by the revolutionary, the strategy and soul revolutionary lending library. It's not just a lending library. And the strategy and soul revolutionary block party, you know, a political block party. And, you know, if we had been a little more hooked in, we could have had a little action right outside every, you know, right on our uh as a block party in solidarity, and we'll be doing that more, you know, because we always have a political program, and there's no reason why. If it's a day of action, we can't t- take a half an hour in the middle of the block party and go outside right on the wonderful corner of King and Crenshaw and do something, you know, so we'll keep that in mind. Um, just one more thought before we get to Barbara is that I was telling Madison, you know, that it's hard for people to imagine the amazing work we did, we and the revolutionary left, to uh, led by the black movement that began to understand the black struggle as an anti-colonial struggle. And once that happened, and that happened as early as 1945, if not earlier, when black GIs came back from World War II only to suffer the most horrendous racist retaliation, that once you say, uh, no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word, and I am not going to go and kill brown people in Vietnam who did nothing to me, uh, which Muhammad Ali said. And when Dr. King said the uh, U.S. is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, and I was just listening to Jane Fonda's amazing uh, clip about the Travis Air Force Base and the heroic work she and Tom Hayden did in opposing the war in Vietnam, that we only, not only stopped the dehumanization of third world people, but increased the humanization of third world people. But of course, the problem is that third world people are fighting for socialism or communism or anti-imperialism. And that is the argument that has to be won. Not that you have to agree with them, but that they have the right of that self-determination, and which Jane Fonda just said again. So we're going to come back to the issue of self-determination, which is you don't have to agree with everything about the People's Republic of China to agree that the United States has no right to call itself a so-called Pacific power. And with that, I segue to my friend Barbara Lott-Holland. Barbara, tell us a little bit about the Stop the MTA Apartheid Pass System campaign. Oh, uh, here we go again. MTA is forever antagonizing their writers. It, it makes you wonder, uh, or at least you acknowledge that they really hate their writing. Right, right. But yes, uh, the, uh, <laughs> as we say in the movement, they're at it again. We're calling on our members as well as our total communities to speak out against MTA's proposed test to see how a no-fair system would work 
But the sad part about this is they 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 are not just doing their own tests. They want the people to take a test, and it's a we're saying no to the means test in exchange for free public transportation. You know, in order to get it, you're telling me I have to come and empty my pockets out to you, show you and prove to you that I'm working for less than a minimum wage to prove to you that transportation uh, in my neighborhood is almost stifled next to none. It's an insult. And I see it and we see it as, as um, MTA making it very difficult, as always, for people to get what they deserve. They, they make it difficult in hoping that people want to do it. So they can say, see, we had the free, we, we tried it, but nobody wanted to ride the bus. Nobody wanted to be intimidated and have to prove their income. And especially here in the, in the era, and I do say era because it's already been a year of COVID, how, how would they even take this test? Would you are forcing them to stay? or maybe even do it on the internet. Whatever it is, it's wrong. Whatever it is, it should not be. People should not have to prove how poor you are in order to get a free, uh, no fare public transportation system when you're already when you're already paying for it. Four percent of every of each hundred dollars is going to MTA. So why is it that you're bleeding the public even more? Yeah, and the thing is that uh, I'm going to read something from uh, what we wrote in this letter to the movement. It says in 1966, when the Bus Riders Union was negotiating with the MTA on a 10-year consent decree, the MTA put language into the decree that our attorneys did not fight to remove that they had the right to institute a so-called low-income pass at any time in the future. Now, the BRU was so infuriated, and our members, uh, Della Bonner in particular, <laughs> that we carried out a substitution of counsel. That means to say we uh, walked away from our own attorneys, in which attorney Amos Dyson represented the strategy center in front of federal judge Terry Hatter to challenge the language. Now, we argue that such a pass would be a stigma for low-income riders, racist in that so many black and Latino riders were very low-income, attack on immigrants who would have to prove income in ways that could lead to possible arrest and deportation. Judge Hatter ruled for the BRU. He told the MTA that they could not impose such a low-income pass without coming back to federal court, where the BRU could challenge its constitutionality and possible civil rights violation. So he'll be even working with the MTA for 10 years to get free public transportation. They haven't done a damn thing. They raised it to $100 a month as a pass. Now they say they're going to work with us towards what they call it fareless, and I'm calling it unfairless, uh, transit. When they finally get this, oh, by the way, we changed our mind you're going to have to prove that you're poor. Now, first of all, no poor people want to prove that they're poor. Uh, you know, when the Jews were being attacked in, uh, in, in, um, in Nazi Germany, we had to wear a yellow Jewish star as we walked down the street so that they could beat the hell out of us. 
And then in, in South Africa, you had to have a pass. So what if, in fact, you're poor and black or low-income and black, and you're on the bus, and you don't want one of those things, and you don't have any money anyway, you're then going to be arrested for not having your pass, just like they did in apartheid South Africa. It's disgusting. It's disgraceful. And we need your help. So we're going to be talking later about why the, there's a lot of things you can do. But if you want to help Code Pink and you really want to help us on this campaign, I need you to write to Eric at the at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com and say, yes, I want to get involved because one time we'll ask you to call Mayor Garcetti. The other thing is the email, and I'm expecting 20 of them. So if you won, you could already start doing it. Eric, I'm in UTLA. I'm a teacher. I'm retired, but I live in Sheila Kuehl's district, who's a member of the uh, uh, county supervisors and MTA. I have influence with Mayor Garcetti. Well, influence, nobody does. I have access to Mayor Garcetti. This is who I am, and I want to get involved. Eric at Voices from the Front Lines. Okay. Uh, Barbara, I will come back to you after shaking a few things. But Madison, <laughs> before we do that, um, why don't you start with what's behind the United States war? And they, by the way, calling it a, a two-pronged war against uh, the People's Republic of China and the Republic of Russia. We'll focus on the China part. What's this about? It's not just about, you know, random racism. There's a deeper strategic view. What, what do you think is behind this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. There's a lot to it, more so than um, Western media would have us believe. Um, there's really multiple prongs. It's being referred to as a hybrid war, um, where we have this U.S. foreign policy of strategic competition that has integrated diplomacy, information, economics, finance, intelligence, law enforcement, military, almost every aspect possible to present the rise of a perceived uh, overtaken power by China. Um, and this really became more visible to the public eye in 2011 with Obama and Clinton's policy of, quote, pivot to Asia. Um, it's been later renamed to the rebalance to Asia, but it's still kind of referred to as the pivot. And this was following the U.S.'s focus on the Middle East. Um, the pivot to Asia essentially moved 60% of our U.S. naval capacity to that region in the Pacific, um, encircled China with 400 U.S. military bases, including radar and missile systems, and also involved building geostrategic alliances um, between the U.S. and countries in the region against China, um, as well as the economic aspect of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the creation of a Trans-Pacific Economic Bloc to basically isolate China. And even before 2011, um, there's evidence going back to 1992 um, in defense planning documents um, of the U.S. foreign policy goal of a unipolar global hegemony, um, as opposed to China, which has a foreign policy of a multipo multipolar um, world order. Um, so, we, there, again, we have U.S. imperialism um, and hegemony at the heart of that, really. Um, so back in 92, there was 
the beginnings of the Pivot to Asia plan, a U.S. national defense strategy, um, which essentially laid out China, Russia, Iran, North Korea as enemies of the U.S. And Obama and Clinton expanded on that. And then we see with the Biden administration um, going back to the Pivot to Asia that Obama and Clinton began to contain what has been perceived or like referred to as a threat to the U.S. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be my answer to that. Well, I think that's a great answer. And uh, I, I was telling you, Madison, that I want to go back and deepen my uh, historical reading again on this. I mean, I mean, one thing that's really great what you said is that, you know, people don't understand that capitalism can't work without fixing the game. Uh, it can't work without low-wage labor. It can't work without slavery. It can't work without killing its opponents. In, in you know the, the Soviet Union talked about peaceful coexistence, but the United States would not allow it. China is saying peaceful coexistence, but China is eating the United States lunch in the realm of constructive technology. It's way ahead of the United States. And one reason is because it has a communist party that provides some discipline and some structure to how they're running the country. As Jody Evans said, <laughs> China's had a centralized government for 2,200 years. I was listening, Jody. Great remarks. Uh, it's very creepy to try to get people in the United States who have such great nation chauvinism to grasp that the United States can't win without its 800 military bases. You know what I mean? It can't win without... Uh... So here's my question back. How in the heck is China <laughs> countering this? I mean, they're really... I, I know some of the things they're doing. They're, they're, first of all, it must be terrifying to try to run your own society knowing you're, you're already encircled by U.S. troops and U.S. bases and U.S. military fleets and the war criminals of uh, um, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and now Joe Biden, and I mean that. What's China going to do besides saying it's wrong? They're pretty smart. What do you think their strategy is? Um, yeah, Chinese officials, um, they have to be strategic because they do not have a choice when they're battling this massive information machine of Western media. Um, so they have to remain diplomatic, which has been their intention and their like stated foreign policy goal all along um, is to maintain these multilateral cooperative relations. Um, something recently... Um, is they have issued a report on human rights violations in the U.S., um, <laughs> which is interesting because they have done that um, many years. There's, the 2021 version was just recently released, and it's usually done as a counter to um, the U.S. Right. Um, but it's really showing that China is trying to break the West's monopoly on what we see as human rights discourse by redefining it um, with backed up evidence. A lot of what Chinese officials try to do is hone in on evidence as much as possible, um, point to factual, provable information as opposed to sensationalized um, fear tactics. Um, 
And as far as in the Pacific, um, from my perspective, a lot of what China is doing is a natural defense um, to the huge increase in um, missile defense capabilities, um, naval capabilities, et cetera, that the U.S. has been um, increasing in presence in the Pacific. Um, I mean, we have, besides the bases, um, over 130,000 U.S. troops stationed in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the U.S. has nearly 20 times the number of nuclear warheads as China. The U.S. is spending three times more on its military than China. Um, and one of the more recent um, Biden administration um, plans is to build a network of precision strike missiles along the islands surrounding Beijing. And this is going to cost uh, $27.4 billion in spending. Um, over the next six years, um, which on its own, we can imagine how that amount of money could be so much better used um, for Americans to provide life-affirming services during a climate crisis, an ongoing recession, and a pandemic. Um, so China is responding a bit um, in terms of there's some activity in Taiwan. Um, a lot of it is reactionary, though, and that's the thing that I would stress Um you know, I'm not going to get into all the details surrounding that, but um, most of it is if we have a power like the U.S. Um, being so militarily aggressive, we have to at least plan because there is the potential for involvement with nuclear weapons. And right. I also want to stress that at that point, this is an existential threat for everyone in the world. Um, and we do not need to let it get to that point um, because China is more than willing to be diplomatic with the U.S., um, it really com comes down to the idea of the zero-sum mentality, um, which, for those who don't know, it's really game theory, um, the belief that a gain for one side is an equal loss for another. And at Code Pink, we're really trying to urge um, folks to see that that is not the only mentality we need to have. We can abandon that mentality when it comes to China-U.S. relations. There doesn't need to be one hegemonic global power. Um, and China has paved the way for that by showing great solidarity with other global South nations and investing in their development and trying to build, like you said, um, that anti-colonial, transnational, multiracial working class movement to create uh, liberation for all oppressed peoples. Well, uh, that was great. And uh couple of thoughts, and uh, I'm going to stay with you a little bit more, and I, I'm going to leave Peaches and Herb to the end. It just seems strange in the middle of that to get up and dance to the, the U.S. death machine, but we'll, 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 <laughs> dance, we'll dance at the end. Uh, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is that, you know, the communist theory says you need to have a dictatorship of the proletariat. You need to have state power. You need to have an army. You have to have your own intelligence. And it's funny how a lot of former communists in the United States, you know, go, oh, we don't believe in that. Uh, that's what was wrong with communism. Well, the cold communist theory has been we could try to reduce uh, this level of force if we could ever stop the United States and Europe from trying to invade us after, after we have a revolution. The United States will not allow anybody to have a revolution, will not let all, allow the world to breathe. So one thing I would say is I don't think it's helpful 
to tell people how much it costs, and that could be used better at home because people who are pro-imperialist don't care. Their argument would be if that's what it's going to take to kill the communists. I mean, the war in Vietnam cost a ton of money, and nobody who was for the war cared. You know, I think the answer is this is profoundly immoral, and we reach out to black, Latinx, third world, as I call you know, white people of conscience, to say this is genocide. You know, it's another form of genocide. And yes, the money could be used better. And the money could be used better by closing down all the prisons. But we never use that argument. Because then you're getting into debate on, you know, what's a better way to use the money versus nobody should be in those prisons in the first place. Just tell you our thinking. So I think what's great about this, though, is um, I'm going to try to figure out, Madison, how you can do a, a kind of a teach-in for people at the Strategy Center because you already know a lot. Uh, Jody Evans knows a lot, and uh, I'm on this. You know what I mean? I'm excited about it, and I'm already envisioning a lot of ideas for this campaign. I was telling you off, off mic that one way I avoid depression is to, because uh, this is very depressing to me in some way, terrifying, is think, well, where do you want to be four years from now? You know, when Biden runs for re-election, how much stronger can we be to challenge this guy and to say that you are doing some very good things on COVID? You are doing some very good things about even the Bessemer uh, workers in the fight with uh, Amazon, but you are trying to destroy the world. Let's be clear. You are going to use nuclear weapons if needed because you can't, compete with the Chinese in a fair way. So tell us a little bit about the Belt and Road Project, the alliance with this, with Russia, and tell us a little bit more about the resources that China is moving into Africa. I will say one thing, uh, one person I'd like to introduce you to is his name is Ayuko Babu, who's the head of the uh, uh, Pan-African Film Festival. He was on our show. And he's a Pan-Africanist, and he was saying, look, what China is doing in Africa is sensational. The United States abandoned Africa, exploited it, and then tried to destroy it. And China is the best friend of the African people. So maybe start there. Why don't you tell us what you know about Belt and Road and development projects in Africa? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. I can give a little overview of some of those points. Um so the Belt and Road Initiative, um, sometimes referred to as the New Silk Road, kind of in reference to the first Silk Road, um, and it is one of the most ambitious infrastructure projects ever conceived in history. Um, it was launched in 2013 by Pre President Xi Jinping, and it involves um, a vast collection of development and investment initiatives that would stretch from East Asia to Europe, kind of connecting Central Asia to um, the rest of the world in a way that it hasn't been in a long time. Um, and it's two-pronged. It, there would be an overland Silk Road economic belt and a maritime Silk Road as well. Um, and it would include railways, energy pipelines, highways, streamlined border crossings, um, going west and southward. southward. Um, and as you can imagine, the U.S. and 
the West in general have a lot of investment in how this project manifests or doesn't. Um, and China as well, China and the U.S. are competing to have this project working in their own interests. Um, and that makes the region of Western China geostrategically crucial right now um, on the world stage. Right now, there's 124-plus countries, I believe, who have signed on to be involved in the Belt Road Initiative. Mm. Um, and it's expected that most global South countries will um, follow suit, especially those with um, significant infrastructure needs, because greater economic independence for China and for its allies, which are often global South nations, will mean a lot less sanction power for the U.S. And we see... Just this month, um, several sanctions from the U.S. have been placed on officials in Russia and China. Um, and in response, Russia and China, to bring up Russia, have um, gotten a lot closer um, as they're both dealing with these illegal unilateral sanctions imposed by the U.S. Um, there have been some joint statements made between Chinese and Russian officials um, and they've mentioned things about what you've mentioned about um, sovereignty and self-determination and how interfering in a sovereign nation's internal affairs um, under the justification or guise of advancing the U.S. quote form of democracy. Um, they stress that a lot, that the U.S. has one form of democracy that it imposes on the rest of the world. Um, and yet it doesn't even abide by those rules itself. Um, and this is where we see the diplomacy and, like, the um, strategy that Russia and Chinese officials um, have to have, like, mastered in order to um, oppose a lot of the media propaganda. Um, but in terms of Africa, um, so the— Hold on a second, Madison. So you listen, that yeah, voice you're listening to, the very nice voice, is the voice of Madison Tang. She's a field organizer with Code Pink, just beginning. The Chinese, the Chinese are, is it not our enemy? Is that correct? Or no, how do you say it? China is not our enemy. Yes. Right, China is not our enemy campaign, uh, initiated by Code Pink and uh, Jody Evans. Uh, another voice you're going to hear is that of Barbara Lott Holland. The, uh, and Barbara, I'm going to want you to respond to this conversation, not just the BAU part. So, um, and this voice you're hearing is Eric Mann. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. If you're listening to us all over the world, which is cool. And please go on voicesfromthefrontlines.com. You can listen to amazing back shows. I, I'm starting to uh, listen to more podcasts, and the first one I'm trying to listen to is our own because... In doing it, I don't often remember everything that happened. Uh, please listen to the podcast on Spotify, on uh, SoundCloud, on Apple. And, yes, send me this urgent email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. But also, uh, Madison, how do they reach you? I just want to make sure that we're making sure that people want to also reach out directly to you in Code Pink. How do they do so? Sure. You can reach out to me directly if you want to be involved um, and support our campaign at Madison, M-A-D-I-S-O-N, 
at codepink.org, C-O-D-E-P-I-N-K. You can also follow our campaign at codepink.org slash China. And you can sign our most recent petition to Secretary Blinken at codepink.org slash Blinken. Cool. Um, go into Africa, and then, Barbara, I want you to respond to that, and then we'll segue to the BRU, okay? Uh, go, go ahead, Madison, about Africa. So recent years has seen China dramatically increasing trade with Africa. Um, it's gone from like 11 billion in 2002 to 185 billion in 2018. Wow. Um, and there's been a lot of Chinese investment in the continent of Africa. Um, but the focus in terms of this investment has been on developing infrastructure. And China has this goal of helping lots of um, Global South nations, specifically with development. Because in China's history, their development was essential um, as a nation to alleviating poverty. We know recently China has alleviated absolute poverty, lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty. Um, so development has been a crucial aspect to China's sovereignty, independence, and to its people's well-being. So it sees that for other nations as a necessity as well. Um, and in terms of development, there's been a focus on improving standards of living. Um, and these are infrastructure projects that it's important to note that European colonial powers have never dared to undertake in Africa. The focus for European colonial powers has always been extracting resources, extracting labor, racial capitalism, that element coming in, um, not investing in a place's, um, a country's ability to be sovereign and for its people to be empowered. Um, so there are things like hydroelectric dams, railroads, schools, hospitals, airports, um, and it's doing this investment, China, um, through giving um, loans. Um, and one thing to note about that is China has been much laxer about the repayment of these loans and the agreements around the loans in the first place um, than former European and American colonial powers, um, which mostly involved the IMF and the World Bank. Um, so some of these loans from China have been deferred. Um, some of them have even been written off completely. Um, and generally, African countries are not paying more in interest on the loans than what they initially received. So that's kind of the overview of some of the development that China is helping Africa with. That's great. And one thing to say is that, you know, that the United States, and uh, if you look at the history of Zimbabwe, how uh, Zimbabwe had such a, a initially a phenomenal social welfare program and then it got into some economic trouble. It got uh, by over, you know, not but not over overspending by spending on social programs. It needed. It was forced into loans by the IMF, which led to just a cycle of of debt uh, peonage, basically. So the nerve to be talking about I, and what you just said is great, Mass, and about how that the, the uh, Chinese are both loaning at very reasonable market rates. And then not enforcing if they they can't pay. Uh, Channing Martinez wanted to make sure that he just sent me a text uh, saying 
when we get back to the BRU, stop the apartheid in L.A. And and one thing on this, we get to Barbara. We this is not a joke about apartheid. You know, I mean, there's a million black people in prison. There are sixty percent of the people being arrested on the trains and buses are black. So we don't use the word apartheid lightly. We don't use the word genocide lightly. But that's what it is. So if you want to work on this campaign, go to strategiesin.org and click the pop-up window to take action to help the campaign. Okay, that's from Channing Martinez, our director of organizing, who's organizing me. So, Barbara, why don't you start with Africa and your response to Madison and then go back to the campaign that we're trying to get the MTA to drop any discussion of a low-income pass or a means test for public transit. Whenever, thank you. Whenever we speak of the motherland, it's very painful to me. That country, and in particular the U.S., wants to continue to rape it of all its natural resources. When we think of U.S. pushing back, and this is still which I have learned, we are still in the so-called Cold War. And the U.S. likes to red face us as individuals to try and deter us for fighting for the right to self-determination of all people. Regardless of what their politics in other countries are, the right to self-determination is utmost and is definitely a necessity. When I was listening to you and you were talking about the repayment of, of death, of debt, <laughs> I was like, wow, this is better. Uh, this is a, a better contribution to Africa than, than even the, um, the UN's world um, on sustainable development and the reduction of, uh, of fossil fuels, the payment back to the countries, not only Africa, but other third world countries, the debt that they have to pay back. And even the IMF. I mean, when you uh, when you look at the contribution that China is even making to the infrastructure of of uh, Africa, they are not there to colonize nor enslave, which is huge. Which is huge. And I am the one to say, U.S. get out of China. Leave China alone. So that's. Um, that's how I'm feeling about this, and I'm learning more and more every day. And uh, I do support the U.S. out of China. Get out of the world. Good grief. <laughs> Close our military bases. Why is it that we think we live the U.S., not our, I'm not a part of this, but the U.S. right to control the world? And even now trying to control space as well as our air and the water to breathe. It's something that people have to think about. And when are we going to wake up? Whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the people? Or are you on the side of this great imperialistic war machine that is trying to take over the world? Preach the gospel, sister. I mean, that was great <laughs> that we really, Barbara, had to say that uh, China is not in Africa, neither to colonize nor enslave. We've got to use that one. That was great. I mean, really... Uh, yeah, and Barbara, you know, we have more time. We could, you know, uh, just for a minute, 
just tell about your Johannesburg experience and then go back to the uh, other apartheid system in the United States. Oh, gosh, that was, um, this is true. About the, I would say about the fourth day in Johannesburg, when people would ask me, what country am I from? I was even afraid to say the U.S. because they were all over me. What are you going to do about your president? You've got to get rid of Bush. Why do you? Why is he still in office? I was like, oh, my stars. So I started saying this small city in Texas that my father came from. It wasn't that high, but at least they didn't know exactly where it was. But <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. And one of the most gratifying spaces that I enjoyed in South Africa was the women's tent, right. which were women from all over the world that was fighting against wars all over the world. And one of the impressive things that they said that I will never get and still say it again today is to have a campaign that says women say, I will not give birth to another soldier. That was so impactful to me. And as I think about how far we have come from that, how far I'm even watching the, the commercials on TV about having our young people join the military is horrible. It's so They make it so enticing and it's just horrible. And every time I see it and I think what not to give birth to another soldier. So that's... Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that one hopeful thing, because we're organizers, right, is that we have people like Barbara Lott Holland and like Madison Tang, and one of the things uh, I'm going to talk about at a later point is that the, mis the, the biggest mistake we can make is sort of think you can do public education sort of into the atmosphere, into media alone into uh, a show like this alone. Imagine Barbara going into all the black spaces that you go in and saying what you just said. Saying to parents, don't put your son in the all-volunteer army. It's not all-volunteer. They're going to come home with PTSD, and they will be asked to commit war crimes. And we have to deal with the anti-Arab Arab sentiment because the United States is a racist country that needs to dehumanize the people it wants to kill. So what they're afraid of is you can go into a union with 5,000 members, and if you and I were in that union, Barbara, and we stood up at a union meeting of, <laughs> of 500 people, and they'd be black and, and Latino and white and Asian, at least 10% would jump right to our side. Yes. And the others would go, oh, shoot. What the hell are these communists doing? You know, <laughs> and we would go, well, we're doing what we want to do, just like you do. And you, you begin to win the argument because you're in the institution. You work with the people. You're an auto worker in the auto workers union. You're a black woman in South Central Los Angeles. That's what the strategy then has going, that we got a base, and we're going to preach this gospel. Um, segue quickly at 349. Uh, to uh, what are we going to do about the MTA's apartheid bus pass? 
Exactly. What are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you, I started right fresh and early this morning on the phone challenging the people I know about the moral question of whether or not you ride the bus. Do you support or how can you support this low-fare, racist, apartheid test that the MTA wants to give to poor people in order to ride public transportation that should be free? Why would you agree to this? Whether you ride the bus or not, we need your support. We need you, again, to call the board members, join our coalition, sign on to our letters to the MTA, and if possible, testify at the town hall tomorrow. And again, I want to repeat what uh, Chani said is please go to strategycenter.org, click on the pop-up window, and take action to help this campaign. And uh, again, show up uh, on the town hall tomorrow and voice a firm no to this apartheid test for a free public transportation system. Well, Barbara, uh, it's been great going to church with you right now. You, you're, you're doing some serious, serious preaching. I mean it, and I, I'm very moved by it. Um, see, what we're trying to do, as you can see, um, Madison, welcome to the Strategy Center, is for us it's one world. It, it's like the, the, you were telling me today, Madison, about uh, Madison Tang from uh, Code Pink. Oh, what about the struggle in Haiti? And I said, we're there. We, we could do that. We already have a bookstore that has Black Jacobins by C.O.R. James. Uh, what, what, what about uh, Africa? We'd love to play a role in that. We're already doing work with COPAC and with uh, um, uh, Habitat for Humanity, I believe. Uh, I, I may get the wrong group. I'm sorry. Um you know, who, who's doing the vaccine, uh, you know, stopping, trying to get, let me slow down, trying to get Moderna and Pfizer to stop going to the WTO, World Trade Organization, to stop giving vaccines. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, is saying this is a moral catastrophe that no more than 20% of Africa is even intended to be vaccinated by the end of 2021. So, Madison, what are you thinking now about what have you learned from us? What have we learned from you? We've learned a lot from you. I mean it. You've been great. What, what, what's this conversation mean to you, and what do you want to do? What are your next steps? Thanks, Eric, and thank you, Barbara, for your words and solidarity with us. I extend the same sentiment. Um, apartheid is real in America. Globally, when it comes to medical vaccine apartheid right now, in other areas of the world like Palestine. Yes. Um, yeah, and those movements are inextricably linked um, when we look at the cross-training of U.S. police with Israeli oh, soldiers and police. Um, but yeah, moving forward, um, I think, um, like you've said, Eric, beyond just popular education, um, rooting popular education, um, 
in the interconnectedness of race and imperialism and class and also history, um, which is so often rewritten for us and taken from us, um, history that connects um, the world order that U.S. hegemony has created across timelines. Um, I think that is crucial. Um, and coalition building to, um, beyond popular education, also coalition building to um, everyone who's affected by things like imperialism and militarization and racial capitalism. Um, so, like, for our movement, that has extended to include um, Native Pacific Islander communities, like those in Okinawa facing ongoing U.S. Yes. military occupation, those in Hawaii, and general resistance movements um, that prioritize demilitarization, denuclearization, um, but also Global South um, solidarity. So these alliances um, between working-class oppressed peoples internationally across the globe, um, transnationally across borders, um, because working people who are oppressed are affected by all of this. Um, and like you've said previously to me, that includes working class people in the United States, includes black Americans, Latinx Americans, Asian Americans, um, Pacific Islander Americans. Um, and I think Americans in the progressive sector, um, can really like, um, I think the emphasis and the focus on that international solidarity um, can really be improved. Um, I've seen in my organizing work prior to working with Code Pink how um, internationally focused anti-imperialists can often feel alienated in certain American organizing spaces. On the left, um, like specifically for my work, Chinese-American and Chinese leftists have felt alienated or unable to organize um, effectively with other American leftists. And I think that comes from American chauvinism and exceptionalism, where we may have people on the left who are doing amazing work on the ground, um, understand the struggles of their community, um, but just need to like remind themselves to take a step backwards and see how U.S. working people are implicated, involved, interconnected to the um, working class anti-colonial struggle across the globe and how we can solidify these um, alliances to challenge um, imperialism across the globe as well. Well, I think that's I think, great. Yeah. And I think my favorite group of Americans, especially are the anti-Americans like myself. So uh, <laughs> nice job. Uh, yes. Nice job, really. I, I was at a, I was really at the, the 19. Uh, we're going to do Oh, we're going out. Okay. I was at a meeting of uh, the 150th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto, and my wife, Leanne Hurstman, led that delegation for the Strategy Center. And all these people were saying, I'm a, a German Marxist, I'm a French Marxist. And I said, I'm an anti-American <laughs> Marxist. And all the third world people came running up to hug me. So that's where I am. Thank you so much, Madison. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you, D'Angelo Jones. And we'll shake our groove thing after the show, okay? Turn it on right now. Go on YouTube and shake your groove thing with Peaches and Herb. I'm going to do the same.
Talk to you next Tuesday. Take good care of yourself. Oh, good. Let's get